This is Rachel Fields and Sean Bull with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Last Friday, Governor Evers pardoned 159 people, according to the Associated Press, further extending his record number of pardons. Nearly all of the pardoned had been convicted of low-level offenses like drug possession or theft. This brings the governor's total number of pardons up to 933 over four years in office, the most of any Wisconsin governor. Evers' predecessor, Scott Walker, did not issue a single pardon over his two terms. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources released approximately 3,500 public comments they received over the past few months after soliciting feedback on their new wolf management plan. The Wisconsin wolf hunt has been a controversial topic over the past few years, and the window for public comment has led to an outpouring of extremely varied opinions. Some comments called for wiping wolves out of the state, while others called the whole idea of hunting the intelligent keystone species abhorrent, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Last November, the Department of Natural Resources released a new wolf management plan, which omitted a specific quota of animals across the state in favor of local population monitoring. Previously, a specific quota of wolves had been used for hunting advocates to call for a hunt after the wolves exceeded the target population. A nonpartisan legislative audit published last Friday found that Wisconsin's probation and parole program was failing to properly monitor offenders and was not adequately offering rehabilitation resources. The program, which is overseen by the Department of Corrections, has failed to follow up on what programs were most successful at preventing reoffense, and did not have a database to record whether people had fulfilled their required rehabilitation programs, according to the audit. As of July last year, Wisconsin probation and parole programs had more than 250 open staff positions, and correction agents often cited high workloads and underpay as a reason they could not adequately help parolees and people on probation, according to the Associated Press. Correction agents, who also reported that the suite of services being offered to offenders was proving inadequate as it failed to meet the healthcare, childcare, and mental health needs of the more than 63,000 Wisconsinites who are part of the Community Corrections Program. Wisconsin's Department of Natural Resources issued a warning today saying that the fire danger level across southern Wisconsin had reached very high levels. Warm and windy conditions, which are predicted to persist through Thursday of this week, are prime for starting forest fires and the department reports that they had already responded to more than 30 forest fires that had burned 45 acres over the past week. The department has asked that all Wisconsinites in the southern half of the state avoid all outdoor burning until conditions improve. Following an additional vote allowed from a provisional ballot, Madison's District 14 race for Alder now comes down to a single vote margin. The race between Noah Lieberman and Isidore Knox Jr. is now likely to go to a recount, which would begin Thursday morning, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. And let that be a reminder that every vote matters, especially in local politics. With the temperature currently around 70 degrees, Madison's Memorial Union Terrace has announced that it will open this Wednesday for the season. The terrace, which is a favorite among tourists and students alike, has more than 800,000 visitors in an average year and hosts a number of activities and gatherings while it is open. 
Terrace visitors can go to terracesummer.com to view an up-to-date event calendar. And now, on to today's top stories. Last year, the City of Madison launched the Madison Forward Fund, a guaranteed income pilot programming po- program providing $500 a month to eligible low-income households, no strings attached. While that program is set to continue until August, a bill introduced by GOP lawmakers last week would see that no other guaranteed income programs in Wisconsin get off the ground. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. Republican lawmakers in the state assembly introduced a bill last week that would ban cities from deploying guaranteed income programs. The bill, which was introduced by 26 GOP representatives last Friday, bans only programs that use public funds and provide folks with regular payment with no strings attached, and not programs which require someone to perform work or attend training. Currently, only one city in Wisconsin has a guaranteed income program, Madison. The city officially launched its Guaranteed Income Pilot Program last year. It's called the Madison Forward Fund. That program gave around 150 qualifying Madison households a monthly payment of $500 to be used however those households saw fit. The Madison Forward Fund, however, does not use any public funding. The money given to Madison households is instead provided through private donations to the Madison Forward Fund through organizations like UW Health and the Alliant Energy Foundation. Therefore, it is unlikely the bill would affect the Madison Forward Fund right away, the state's nonpartisan legislative audit bureau told WORT. It would, however, block the program from expanding with public funding once the pilot concludes in August. Blake Roberts is the program manager for the Madison Forward Fund. She told WORT that she's disappointed in the bill and that it implies that guaranteed income programs disincentivize work. She says that, though the pilot program is still ongoing, most of those receiving money from the Madison Forward Fund are still working. Two other Wisconsin cities have floated the idea of creating a guaranteed income program. Before being appointed to U.S. Ambassador to Luxembourg, former Milwaukee Mayor Tom Barrett helped to develop a universal basic income program, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. But the office of current Milwaukee Mayor Cavalier Johnson told WORT that there have not been any efforts to advance the idea since Johnson took office last year. The city of Wausau has also played with the idea of a guaranteed income program, but have put their plans on hold until they see the final results of Madison's guaranteed income program. Wausau Mayor Katie Rosenberg says that, seeing as their program would also be paid for through private donations, the bill wouldn't put a complete stop on any future plans. You know, it kind of puts a political pressure on programming or at least an idea in a way that's kind of odd. You know, I think even that referenda that we voted on um, in the last cycle here, um, it it shows that people have certain feelings towards folks who maybe have less than. And so, you know, I don't I don't necessarily know where that puts the public sentiment here. I think a lot of people were interested in whether or not a program like this works better than programming that we currently have in place. None of the 26 Republican representatives who introduced the bill were available to comment by airtime. The bill does not yet have a counterpart in the Senate, which would also need to be passed for the bill to go to Governor Evers' desk. 
The assembly bill will now be heard in the Assembly Committee on Local Government, who will be discussing the bill in a public hearing on Wednesday. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie Hout. Late Friday, a federal judge issued a ruling that would block a legal and common abortion drug. In response, a local group called an emergency action at the Capitol on Saturday. Greg Jaboski spoke to some of the organizers. My body, my choice! My body, my choice! My body, my choice! Late Friday afternoon, reports came out that the U.S. District Court Judge Matthew Katzmarek, a Donald Trump appointee, had issued a nationwide injunction against the distribution of the drug Mifepristone, a medication that was approved by the Food and Drug Administration 23 years ago. Mifepristone allows for drug-induced abortions, and since that time has been shown to be safe and effective, including for the treatment of ectopic pregnancies. So on Saturday, the day following the ruling, the local Madison Abortion Reproductive Rights Coalition for Healthcare, or MARCH, organized an emergency rally and speakout at the State Street corner of the Capitol. MARCH members Caitlin Benedetto and Destiny Smoot explained why the speakout was called. So we are trying to raise awareness about the decision that was made yesterday to revoke FDA approval for mifepristone, which is a commonly used drug in uh, medication abortions, as well as treatment of miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies. It's such a new thing and it's an unfolding situation, so um, we want to make sure that people understand what this change means and who they can go to if they want to speak out against it. Okay. We need to organize. We need to organize and get in the streets and make our, our voices heard and known that abortion is health care and everybody should have access to abortion. Tell, tell your family, <laughs> tell your friends. <laughs> uh, this is an issue that really affects everyone. Um, even if you can't get pregnant, you know, this affects families, this affects teenagers, really everyone. I think that there's there can be like such an onslaught of information every day, you know, new, new rulings every day, and it's easy to kind of get overwhelmed and tune out, but we really need people to know what's happening, know what's happening to their rights, how their rights are being restricted, and follow March. They can follow other uh, accounts on social media and really just like tell people in your life what is happening. Share the education and the information because I think that the people who want to take our access to abortion and healthcare away are kind of banking on the fact that we're going to tune out and feel like there's nothing we can do. But we really can make a change if we all work together. Now, now March, in your acronym, but well, it's Reproductive Rights in Healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the, the, if I understand correctly, the judge has banned an approved drug, a federally approved drug approved by the FDA. Does this have a repercussions for access to medication in general? As, as far as I'm aware, mifepristone is only used for abortion or ectopic pregnancies or miscarriages. The other medication used in conjunction is misoprostol, which is used for abortions, uh, ectopic pregnancies, miscarriages, but it's used for other things as well. Did you have a plan for So it was easier for them to take this one away, but if they can do it with this drug, they can absolutely absolutely come after misoprostol. I think that this is kind of a first step in attacking really any kind of medication associated with reproductive rights, so that would include birth control as well. I definitely don't think that they're going to stop uh, with this one ruling. So 
I, I was just talking to another member of March and we were saying, you know, we always tell ourselves, oh, that's not going to happen, that's not going to happen. But really, we need to be in the mindset of, like, anything it could happen and, and, you know, any of our rights are at risk right now. Can I ask you who, who people should go to if they want to get in touch with March and, or any other group? That uh, yeah, we have a, a Facebook page, we have an Instagram, we have our own website, March. It's two R's. Reach out on Facebook, otherwise we do have an email, which you can find on our Facebook as well. Everybody's welcome. Uh, just follow us on social media, come out to our next protest. Um, we're gonna be doing things all spring and summer, so yeah, stay tuned. Okay. Abortion and bodily autonomy are healthcare. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Those were Caitlin Benedetto and Destiny Smoot of March. The ban does not go into immediate effect, but could happen soon. The judge delayed the effect of his ruling for one week. Also on Friday, a different federal judge based in Washington state issued a ruling which contradicts the effect of Kesmar's injunction, with that judge arguing that the FDA is right now being too restrictive in its regulation of mifepristone. For its part, the U.S. Department of Justice has appealed Kesmar's ruling. According to a statement issued by the DOJ, quote, Rather than preserving the status quo, as preliminary relief is meant to do, the district court appended decades of reliance by blocking FDA's approval of mifepristone and depriving patients of access to the safe and effective treatment based on the court's own misguided assessment of the drug's safety. For the 6 o'clock news, I'm Greg Jabosky. Earlier this year, Governor Tony Evers unveiled his plan for the next state budget, offering lower taxes for those with low and middle incomes. That's at odds with the GOP-led legislature's plan, which is looking for a flat income tax that would result in a higher tax cut for the state's wealthiest. Last week, the nonpartisan Wisconsin Policy Forum released a new report outlining the differences between the two plans. Jason Stein is the research director with the Wisconsin Policy Forum and spoke with WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt about the new report earlier today. Now, Jason, you say at the top of this report that neither of these plans are likely to become law, at least as the plans are currently. Uh, what did you look at with this report and why did you write the report? Sure. I mean, I think we looked at the two plans. You know, Republicans in the legislature have flatly rejected uh, the governor's proposal and also have signaled that uh, the majority leader's proposal is also unlikely to pass in its current form. But I think still we, we know that there's going to be, you know, significant income tax changes, at least on the table in the current budget because of the very large surplus that we have. And these two competing plans do sort of represent opposing visions of what each side would like to see in terms of income tax changes. So I still, I think in terms of laying out what the ideal would be for the two sides and where the points of disagreement are, I think looking at the two plans makes makes sense. What are the major differences between Evers' plan and Lemahieu's plan? I mean, the governor's plan would make a number of tax changes. And if you look at the main provisions that he has proposed, they would decrease tax collections for low and middle income taxpayers and increase them for taxpayers on the upper end, particularly for taxpayers with state adjusted gross income of more than a million dollars a year. The Lemahieu proposal is simpler in terms of what it would do. It takes the state's existing income tax rates, which go from 3.54% 
tax rate on the bottom income at the bottom bracket in the state to 7.65% for income at the very highest level. And it would reduce all of those to 3.25%. So, I mean, you know, the main thing it would do there is it would give more than a four percentage point decrease in the tax rate applying to income at the upper levels, you know, earned by, by higher income individuals. And it would provide a, a relatively modest tax cut to people at the low end. And now I want to take a, a look at the impact of these plans, both on the state's coffers and on the individual taxpayers themselves. And I want to take a look at the plans individually, starting with Evers. What would uh, Governor Evers's plan look like for the state of Wisconsin? Sure. I mean, on net, there would, if you include the tax credit payments that he would make to, he would increase for individuals who don't currently owe state income tax, the state would be out a modest amount of money, but you can really think of the Evers plan as essentially keeping income tax revenues flat. The Lemahieu plan, uh, very different. So that plan, when it's fully phased, it would be fully phased in over four years and get fully phased in in tax year 2026. And in that year, you know, it would decrease revenues by more than $4 billion. So you know, very big difference between the two plans in terms of their their impact on the state budget and, you know, likely on on public services as well. This report also compares Wisconsin's tax codes to those of other surrounding states. How does the current plan square up to other states? And then how would each of these proposals sort of compare? Sure. And, and let me loop back around because I think you also wanted to ask about you know, what is what is the impact on ordinary individuals of the two competing plans? And so, you know, under the the Evers plan, you would for, for your typical taxpayer, even at the lower end, would still get a uh, hundred dollar uh, tax decrease um, on the upper end. Uh, the average tax increase for individuals with AGI of more than a million dollars a year would be uh, nearly a $40,000 tax increase on average. Uh, under the Republican plan, you would have a relatively modest tax decrease for people people with the very low end but still owed state income taxes. So they might, uh, people with income of less than $20,000 a year would see an average cut of about $8. And then people at the high end who had AGI of more than a million dollars a year would would see an average tax cut of about $108,000 a year. If you look at Wisconsin's income tax rates and how we compare to other states, if you just look at, at the top tax rate in the state, it is eighth highest in Wisconsin, that 7.65% is eighth highest nationally. Uh, if you look at our lowest income tax rate, that is the 3.54%, that is the lowest of our neighboring states, and but still, you know, somewhat high compared to a number of states uh, nationally. But in a lot of ways, looking at just the nominal tax rates isn't really a good way of thinking about it, because what those don't tell you is it they don't tell you, you know, what income is subject to taxes. For instance, in Wisconsin, Social Security income is not subject to state income taxes. So that's a, you know, a notable thing. And then there are deductions and credits that really vary widely by state. So 
what you kind of want to know is what is the effective income tax rate. And, you know, if you look at that nationally, the effective income tax rate for Wisconsin, for people at the very low end, is more favorable here than nationally for those individuals. It's actually a negative tax rate. In other words, on average, people at the very low end of the income scale would be receiving, people with income of $20,000 a year would be actually receiving a payment from the state rather than owing income taxes. And then Wisconsin, for people at the very high end, let's say people who are making a million dollars a year, Wisconsin's effective tax rate would be higher than the national average. So that's that's at least a sense of how we would compare to other states. All right. And Jason, we're just sort of wrapping up here. Do you have just any final thoughts on this report that you would like to to share with me here? Sure. I mean, I think a lot of this, we, we don't advocate for against these proposals. I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, what your listeners might see as fair. And they might look at the fact that, you know, in Wisconsin, um, the effective tax rates on people at the upper end are somewhat more. And they might look at that as a reason to make a change at that level. On the other hand, they might look at the ability of people at that level to pay, and they might feel very differently. They might want to see further uh, advantages for people at the lower end. Last, you know, we have to think about public services as well as, you know, what is going to boost economic growth, which is tied to both the tax system as well as those public services. I've been talking with Jason Stein, Research Director with the Wisconsin Policy Forum, on their newest report comparing Governor Evers and Senate Majority Leader Lemahieu's tax plans. The state legislature will continue to deliberate the budget uh, until about June, when they will send it back to Governor Evers' desk. Jason, thank you so much for talking with me today. Always a pleasure. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sean Bull. Thanks for joining us. Every Monday, we check in with Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan to take a look at what's happening this week in city and county government. This week on Forward Lookout, Dean County works to certify last week's election results, and Madison debates the demolition of several State Street buildings. It's Monday, so we got Brenda Conkle on the line from ForwardLookout.com to talk about what's happening this week in local government. And a lot is happening uh, at the county level um, because of the election. So we had the Board of Canvassers this morning. And uh, anything else? Are they going to be reconvening again? Yeah, they're meeting three times this week. So they're going to meet again on Wednesday and possibly again on Thursday. Depends upon how far they get. And so, well, does it normally take that long? Because we have a recount in one of these Madison council races, correct? Yeah, I don't think they'll be involved in the recount. The recount for the city of Madison will be on Wednesday, I believe. And then I think the reason it's probably taking so long this time is they have those statewide referendum questions. They have the county referendum questions. Um, and they also had the Supreme Court and, you know, I think, and it was sort of a little bit higher turnout. So, um, they had a bunch of judges races in a lot of the towns around Madison as well. So I think it's just the, the volume of things they have to count, uh, the number of races that they have to re- to make sure that they got it all right. 
Yes, it must, yeah, it just a particularly busy spring election for the canvassers. Yep. Yeah. Well, also happening, busy busy day for the county. The at five thirty, already in progress, we have the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee and the Personnel and Finance Committee, and they're working on yet another uh, allocation for the the jail. More borrowing, right? Yeah, it's a joint meeting with the two of them, and they are going to be looking at. Two different uh, pieces of legislation. One is amending the capital budget, and then the other is borrowing an additional $10 million for the jail. Do they need both to to get this project off the ground, I guess? I believe that they do, yes. Yeah, they have to approve the money, and then they have to borrow the money. And probably will be um, another close vote at, with the, the full board whenever maybe it reaches there next week. It's not this week. Yeah, it's not this week, so it likely is next week. They don't have a, a real strong pattern of when their meetings are, but usually if it's every other week, approximately. <laughs> also happening right now, uh, the Plan Commission is meeting. Uh, it's a virtual meeting that started at 5.30. So we're, we've moved on to the city of Madison. So um, Plan Commission has a, a couple of projects on there. There's a fourth on the 4,000 block of Marsh Road. They have a, um, a zoning issue there, um, as well as the 700 block of Cottage Grove Road. They're going to be demolishing um, the old taxi business there, and then they're going to be doing an indoor storage facility. Um, and then they have a couple more projects, conditional uses at 652 Burnt Sienna Drive and 5701 Raymond Road. Um, and those both look like those will be residential projects. Um, and then they have a preliminary plat. Um, and then on the 400 block of State Street, they're demolishing three different buildings um, and then seeking a condition, conditional use there as well um, for another mixed use building. People will probably notice that one on the 400 block of State Street. Yeah, 428 through 444 State Street. So next time you're down there, you might want to take a look around. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, also happening tonight. No, no. Moving on to Tuesday. Um, you know, we are kind of in between uh, councils, right? And the mayor being sworn in. So meetings are a little weird this week. Um, but they're having a practice meeting of the Common Council at 6 p.m. on Tuesday. I guess even alders need practice. Yeah, I think probably because of the hybrid nature of the meetings, they want to make sure that everybody can figure it out. So I've never seen this before, but um, they are going to have the current alders as well as the newly elected alders come in and have a practice meeting as part of the orientation that they're doing. And I know that they're trying to help the new alders um, have a better orientation every year. And this may be one of those improvements as well. Uh, Public Safety and Review Committee. 5 p.m. Looks like business as usual for them. Um, yeah, the year, um, we have an ordinance that has been sent to us that uh, would re uh, take away the ticket for selling nunchucks in the city of Madison. Um, there's a state law that prohibits it, so they just want to go with the state law. And then they're going to... Let's back up there, Brenda. So state law says, uh-uh, you can't have a rule regulating nunchucks. Yeah, selling of the nunchucks. When are we going to get some rational nunchuck reform in this town. <laughs> Who knows? I, I, I'm curious to see if uh, Eric Paulson shows up to explain this one to us. Normally, we like to have Madison General Ordinances so we can give tickets so we don't have to do a full state charge for folks. But sometimes they do it because then um, people just, the, the police department sometimes thinks that it's not as big of an, an issue and so they don't charge it. So we'll we'll see how that one goes. The other big issue there is that they're going to start looking at the role of the Public Safety Review Committee and uh, what its purpose is and how to move forward with all the police 
and fire commission and then the oversight board um just once again looking at how the three committees work together well we'll just take that and chuck one as the regular cleanup of ordinances that's happening that's what it says yes <laughs> okay all right well finally um can we just quick talk about the transportation commission which is meeting at 5 p.m Sure. Um, there's two projects there. Um, one, John Nolan Drive. So they're they're going to be looking for, um, they do a project review and feedback for some of the um, developments and transportation projects. And then there's another one at the American Center Platte, um, the fifth edition. Um, and then they'll also be looking at the TIP. Um, and that is the um, the annual five-year plan for which roads are going to get repaired next. Um, so that may be of interest to some folks. And they're going to also be looking at equity inclusion and their annual work plan. And if people want to know more about what's happening in county, Dane County, or city of Madison government, you can head on over to forwardlookout.com. Hey, Brenda, thanks. And looking forward to the new council. So we have some new things to talk about. Yep. Should be interesting next week. Yesterday, April 9th, was the anniversary of the birth of Paul Robeson, one of the most extraordinary people of the 20th century. He was an athlete, a singer, an actor, and a radical internationalist. On this edition of The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson outlines how Robeson fought for justice for African Americans and people fighting against colonialism. The intro you'll hear on this segment is Robeson singing Old Man River, and the outro is Robeson singing Joe Hill to Scottish Miners in 1939. Yesterday, April 9th, is the birthday of Paul Robeson, one of the most extraordinary figures of the 20th century. He was born in New Jersey in 1898. His father had been born into slavery. Young Paul won an academic scholarship and also excelled in sports, becoming an all-American college football player and even playing professionally for a while. He graduated from law school, practiced briefly, but decided on a career in music and theater. He was influenced by the Harlem Renaissance, and with his ambitious spouse, Essie, as manager, his career took off. Robeson went to Britain with touring plays in the 20s. Paul and Essie spent almost 10 years in Britain as Paul acted and became a popular concert performer, touring Europe and beyond. There, Robeson, associated with anti-imperialists and British socialists, working class movements and unions. In late 1934, Paul and Essie traveled to the Soviet Union to discuss doing a film with the great Russian director Sergei Eisenstein. During a brief layover in Germany, they felt directly the racism of Nazis in the streets and learned more from a Jewish friend there. Upon arrival in Moscow, Robeson said, Here, I am not a Negro, but a human being. For the first time in my life, I walk in full human dignity. But the real turning point in Robeson's life came when he witnessed the struggle against fascism in the Spanish Civil War. Then he became a serious political activist. In 1938, he used concert performances to advocate the Republican cause and bring attention to the war's refugees. He declared, The artist must take sides. He must elect to fight for freedom or slavery. I have made my choice. I had no alternative. Robeson performed in the film The Proud Valley, 1940, 
in solidarity with Welsh miners. With war looming, Paul and Essie returned to the U.S., where Paul was tremendously popular, especially after the national radio broadcast of Ballad for Americans. He became involved with the National Negro Congress and the International Committee on African Affairs. He used his fame to promote liberation for African Americans and those seeking freedom from colonial rule. Robeson saw the Soviet Union as a main supporter of those revolutionary forces, and he also came to support the Chinese Revolution. But in 1949, Robeson went too far, at least as the American media reported it. After Robeson attended the Congress of World Partisans for Peace, the Associated Press attributed a quote to Robeson that said, We colonial peoples have contributed to the building of the United States and are determined to share its wealth. We denounce the policy of the United States government, which is similar to Hitler and Goebbels. It is unthinkable that American Negroes would go to war on behalf of those who have oppressed us for generations against a country in the Soviet Union, which in one generation has raised our people to the full dignity of mankind. But Robeson hadn't actually said that. If he had, it would have echoed previous African-American leaders questioning of whether blacks should fight in U.S. wars. Nevertheless, the outcry against Robeson was immediate and nearly universal. The white media calling him a traitor and most mainstream black leaders denouncing him as well. Concert work began to dry up and Robeson's passport was revoked the next year, denying him lucrative work abroad, piling on the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, called on African-American leaders for testimony, in effect pledges of loyalty, to respond to Robeson's statement. In June 1956, Robeson testified before the HUAC committee and pled the fifth rather than name names. He turned the tables on the U.S. government saying, You gentlemen belong with the Alien and Sedition Acts, and you are the non-patriots, and you are the un-Americans, and you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. Pressed about communism, he said, Wherever I have been in the world, Scandinavia, England, and in many places, the first to die in the struggle against fascism has been the communists. He asked, Can we oppose white supremacy in South Carolina and not oppose the same system in South Africa? He concluded, The colonial peoples, the colored people of the world are going to be free and equal no matter whose best interest lies in the way. The committee adjourned in frustration. Robeson's passport was finally restored in 1958 due to international pressure. For a time, he returned to the international stage, performing in England, across Europe, and again in his beloved Soviet Union. But his health declined rapidly in 1959, and he suffered severe depressions. After years of treatment in London, with heavy ECT, electric shock treatment, he was taken by Essie to a Polish facility in August of 1963, where he received psychotherapy and less medication. By December of 1963, they returned home. Two years later, Essie died from cancer. Paul Robeson died from complications of a stroke on January 23, 1976. Today, this immensely talented, courageous, and politically committed and principled figure is remembered as an A-list performer whose career was cut short by the Cold War blacklist. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past, I'm Harry Richardson. I saw Joey here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joey, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. In one of the first signs of warm weather, the Memorial Union Terrace will be opening for the season this Wednesday. It'll be unusually warm for its opening day. Caitlin Davis has this week's full weather forecast. 
It's finally that time of the year again, where we catch a few glimpses of really nice weather before dropping back into the cooler temperatures. Overall, this week is looking to feel really nice with mostly clear skies, but a mix-in of some rain into the weekend. After enjoying a bit of a cooler weekend, it's time to dive into a sunny, warm, and windy week. Now that we are moving into warmer weather and we will start hearing the crickets soon, did you know that it is said that you can determine the temperature by the number of the times a cricket chirps in 15 seconds? Once you get that number, you add 40 to it and that should determine the temperature outside. This phenomenon comes from Western science and it's called Dalbert's Law and was published in 1897 by Amos Dalbert. So next time you hear crickets chirping, give them a listen and hear what they have to say. The sun is now rising around 6.22 a.m. and you may ask why the sun is so famous if it's shining so early. And that's because the sun is a rising star every day. Last year's high of the day was 59 degrees and the historical average for today is 54.6. And today we are looking to be much higher than those temperatures. Current temperatures are sitting around 68 degrees with winds blowing from the southwest at 7 miles per hour. Mostly sunny skies are present and into the evening the skies should be mostly clear. Temperatures are looking to drop down into the 50s overnight. It's time to remember to protect your skin. The UV index has officially entered the high category, which means your skin can burn in about 15 to 25 minutes, especially if you have fair skin. It's time to enjoy the weather and not be cooking like a lobster. Be sure to use sunscreen to protect your skin and moisturize your skin more as we move into high UV indexes. Also, be sure to keep in mind to protect your scalp and even your eyes. Most people forget to add sunscreen to the exposed parts of their scalp, which makes for a really uncomfortable shower when it gets burnt. And protect your eyes from those rays too. Too much exposure over time can lead to worsening eyesight. Although it is funny to see your friends be all red and joke with them about being sunburned, it is important to remember that most skin cancers are caused by too much exposure to UV light. UV rays are invisible and it's a kind of radiation that comes from the sun. UV rays can damage your skin cells. You don't have to avoid the sun completely, but it is important to remember to protect your skin, whether that's with sunscreen or with UV-protecting clothing. Tomorrow is looking to reach a high of 75 degrees with sunny skies and moderate humidity. Tomorrow will be a great day to enjoy the outdoors with mild winds blowing between 10 to 15 miles per hour to give you a nice breeze in these warm temperatures. Humidity is looking to stay nice and low for our area at 47%. The UV is looking to reach 5 tomorrow. Looking into the evening, temperatures will drop down into the mid-50s with those continued winds between 10 to 15 miles per hour. A few clouds will be in the area in the evening. Wednesday is looking to be our hottest day of the week, looking to reach around 79 degrees. But don't worry, winds between 10 to 20 miles per hour will be cooling you down a bit. The UV is looking to reach 6 and skies will be clear and sunny. Humidity is again staying low at 46%, so Wednesday will make for a really nice day. Although you may want to jump into the lake with these high temperatures, it's better to enjoy water parks during this time of the year. Lake Monona's water temperature is only 33 degrees and you can freeze. So be sure to check out local parks and pools to cool down. Wednesday night temperatures are dropping down into the 50s and wind speeds will drop between 10 to 15 miles per hour. Humidity will be moving into the 50th percentile. Thursday is continuing with a nice weather pattern, sunny and clear skies with a high of 77. Winds again will be picking up, blowing between 10 to 20 miles per hour. 
Humidity will be low in the 40th percentile, and overnight temperatures will drop into the low 50s, but clear skies will still be present. Friday is looking to break the pattern of clear skies, but not by much. Skies will be variably cloudy and a chance of some rain, mostly looking into the evening. The high will reach the mid-70s with continued high wind speeds. Overnight, again, a chance for a few scattered showers. Temperatures will be dropping into the low 50s and wind speeds will be lower as well. Into the weekend, we are looking to see some scattered showers and thunderstorms. We will be seeing a pattern of low temperatures, high humidity, and high winds. So be sure to enjoy the weekday weather because the weekend isn't looking to be too promising as far as clear skies and warm weather. The same chilly pattern is looking to continue into next week as well. Wishing you a beautiful week of warm temperatures and clear skies. For WORT News, I'm your weather producer, Caitlin Davis. Today, featured contributor Harry Richardson reviews a new movie on the big screen and a new series on the small one. Dungeons and Dragons is a new action comedy with swords and sorcerers and fantasy. And the law according to Lydia Poet, based on the true story of Italy's first woman attorney, has just started streaming on Netflix. None of us can say our lives gone the way we don't. I did think you'd serve longer. You got an early release? Good behavior. Yeah, baby, good. That was clipped from the trailer for a fun new fantasy comedy with a great cast, Dungeons & Dragons, directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein. I must admit I never played Dungeons & Dragons, but that didn't stop me from enjoying the movie. I hear there's some cool inside jokes I missed, but I enjoyed the story's adventure and humor. I've been looking forward to seeing this since I saw the trailer a while back. I was initially resistant to making yet another movie based on a popular board game, but this film works because it doesn't take itself too seriously and has a fun, charismatic crew of thieves, led by Chris Pine as Edgen, a disillusioned Harper who's given up on doing good and being poor. He's joined by a barbarian, Holga, Michelle Rodriguez, who gets some cool fight scenes, a hapless sorcerer, Simon, Justice Smith, and a very confident, shape-shifting druid, Doric, Sophia Lillis. Our story opens with Elgin and Holga in a rough-hewn but inescapable prison. A grizzled new inmate underestimates Holga. Elgin has a plan when they go before the very unusual parole board and manage to escape. Edgen needs a magic charm, the tablet of reawakening that his conman partner agreed to hold for him when Edgen and Holga were captured. Edgen wants to use the tablet to get his dead spouse back, but as you might expect, the conman, Forge, Hugh Grant, has other plans. He also is supposed to be watching Edgen's daughter. Also on Forge's side is a powerful evil red wizard, hiding as a more neutral blue wizard. Forge, has done well in the two years our heroes have been in prison and refuses to give up the tablet, which means Edgen and Holga need a plan B, and Edgen comes up with one that involves a fun escapade to get a magic helmet and return for the tablet and his daughter. All in all, a fun action-adventure comedy, sword and sorcery film. The ending leaves things open for a sequel, and that would be okay. I highly recommend this movie. Now for something longer and more serious. A new series on the small screen. Non hai mai sentito il giudizio degli uomini addosso tutti i giorni. Ma non sono ancora riusciti a cambiarmi. And that was a clip from the trailer for the new six-part series based on a true story, The Law According to Lydia Poet, directed by Letizia Lamartier and Matei Rovier. Lydia Poet is shot on location in Turin, northern Italy. It's set in 1883 and tells us the story of poet Matilda de Angeles 
and she struggles to become Italy's first woman attorney. The show is well filmed and effectively shows the wealth. We start with a ballet, stately mansions, and life of the privileged, but soon turns to the winding back streets of the poor and criminal sector. Each episode gives Lydia a new puzzle and crime to solve, putting on full display the expected roles of women and what happens when they try to push beyond them. Our story's opening soon dissolves into a crime scene as a lead ballerina is found murdered and stuffed in a trunk. Then we move to a steamy scene with poet and lover being interrupted by the alleged killer's mom. The mother is distraught at the awaiting fate of her son, but is also practical. I hear you charge less, you know, because you're a woman. Poet, with the landlady literally at her door for past due rent, has little choice but to take the case. She goes to see the accused in prison and thinks something is amiss, that her client didn't do it. He is a stalker, which is creepy, but not a killer. She tries to get the judge to dust for fingerprints at the scene, then a newfangled concept, but he rebuffs her. And we see another part of her problem. Not only does she want to be a lawyer, which is bad enough in the judge's eyes. He's one of the main people who will judge her worthiness, but she also wants to introduce new ideas new methods, and ways of doing things more broadly. The judge, not surprisingly, is perfectly happy with the way things are. Poet finds her license revoked and gets kicked out of her room for non-payment and is forced to seek the aid of her successful older brother, Enrico Pierre Luigi Passino. Enrico lives in the family's comfortable home with his spouse, Tessa Sarah Lazaro, teen daughter, and his brother-in-law, Jacopa Scarpetta. The conventional Enrico is uncomfortable with his sister's chosen profession, especially since it might jeopardize his law career. He comes around in episode 3. In fact, all the characters evolve as the story moves along. Even Tessa is not as conventional as she first appears. All in all, a fun murder mystery series well worth watching. Episode 6 leaves open rich possibilities for a season 2. I hope Netflix approves it. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter was Greg Jaboski. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. <laughs>